Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. Grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Several months ago, I began a series of topical messages. Most of those topical messages were the result of suggestions. Folk told me what they wanted me to go back and cover, and much of it was going back to the basics. And that's why this series of topical messages has been the doctrines of grace, the basics of Christianity, the basics of even giving the last few weeks. I did slip in there, Paul on Mars Hill, just because I liked it, and I figured I ought to get one shot in there somewhere. This morning is also a result of a suggestion from another person who shall remain nameless, but his initials are Kellen. And... And I have never taught this particular message before. And so I hope it goes well. If it doesn't, you know who to blame. Blame Kellen. (laughs) Exactly. Years ago, I mean before we even moved into this building, I began using the phrase, be the Christian. And what I meant by that phrase was, and usually the context in which I would use the phrase, was if everybody else in the world gives up on the Christian faith, and if you wake up tomorrow and you find out that Jim has apostatized, if you find out that GCA has closed its doors and written Ichabod over the door, if the whole world seems to be avoiding the Christian faith, you still be the Christian. Because Christianity is an individual relationship between you and God, between you and your Savior. And your Christianity should not be dependent on what Luann thinks, or what Steve thinks, or what Leon thinks, or what... If they one day wake up and say something really heretical, I mean really whack, really crazy, you know, like Luann does. If, if so, I'm sorry, I don't. If they apostatize, you should not lose your faith over it. You be the Christian. Through the years, I have used that phrase frequently, be the Christian. And Kellen's question was, what does that mean, be the Christian? Can you define what it is to be the Christian? And I thought, well, that is such a good question. And the very fact that he asked it means that there are people out on the Internet who probably have that same question. And so as we've been going through the basics of Christianity here again, the basics of the history of of the church and the doctrines and how it is that we came to believe what we believe and looking at the Protestant Reformation again and how the church functions again. And well, then we should really break it down to the very basis, the very brassiest of tacks. We ought to break it down to what does it mean to be the Christian? So that's what we're going to do this morning. Now, In order to do that, I really have to define some terms. If you would, Tom, look up Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. The rest of you can look that up too if you would like, but Tom is going to read it to us in a moment. To be the Christian is much more than just simply being born into a Christian nation. There are nations on the planet that identify as Christian nations. And just because you happen to be a citizen of one of those nations does not necessarily make you a Christian. That's not the kind of Christianity I'm talking about when I say 
be the Christian. It also doesn't mean that you came from a Christian family. Your mom and dad could have faith, but that does not make you a Christian. It's not about your church affiliation. It's not about your membership in a certain club. It's not about what denomination you come from. Those are none of the things that I'm talking about. It's not a matter of fiercely holding to the specific church councils and the creeds and the confessions and what they all say. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what it is to be genuinely a Christian. It's more individual than all that. That is why I use the phrase, you be the Christian. The term Christian refers to, in its most specific, most definitional sense, it refers to somebody who trusts Jesus Christ as his Savior and recognizes that Jesus Christ is their Lord and who strives to follow him, to follow Jesus in absolutely every area of life. That is what we refer to as the Christian worldview. You can view the world, you can look at the world in all of its seeming randomness and craziness, and you will view the world through a particular lens. Sometimes that lens is nothing more than your set of opinions, preferences, biases, the things that you've grown up with, the things that you've been taught by your parents, by society, by your school, by whatever group you were a part of. And so that's the way you will look at the world. But to be a Christian is to view the world and to view everything in the world and to view your participation in the world through the lens of Jesus Christ, who is your Savior, your Lord, your Master, and that is how you view the world. If you recognize that Jesus Christ is absolutely sovereign and can do whatever he wants to do, then that means that the world, in all of its chaos and craziness at this moment, is exactly how he intended for it to be. And in fact, we know that because we can read our Bible and it'll say that things are going to get worse. Along with other phrases that I've used all these years, one of those phrases is, cheer up, saints, it's going to get worse. And the reason that I use that phrase is because that's what the Bible says. The Bible says the world is going to wax worse and worse. So it shouldn't be a surprise that it is. Okay, as I've explained that, I've explained my view of the world. The world is under the hand of a completely sovereign Christ who is doing whatever he wants with what belongs to him. And so that is a Christian world view. I view the world with Christ as the focal point, as Christ as the lens through which I see everything else. Why do I get up in the morning? Christ. He let me live another day. He gave me another breath. He let me know my own name. When I do my work, whatever it is my hand finds to do, I do it as unto the Lord. Why? Because that's what the Bible says to do. When I sit down to eat food, I thank God for the food and the money it took to buy the food because I recognize that there are people starving on the planet and he was under no obligation to feed me today, but he fed me today and I thank him for it. So every aspect of my daily routine and life, I look at through the lens of Christ, my Savior, my Lord, my Master. That's what I mean when I say Christian worldview and that is part of what it is to be a Christian it's really important that I try to be really really clear because I want you to understand what I am saying but I also want you to understand what I'm not saying I am not assuming that anybody who claims to believe in Jesus quote unquote is indeed a biblical Christian. The Bible defines what Christianity is. And if you're not in league with the biblical definition, 
then you are, by definition, not Christian. And that's a hard statement for some people to hear because we live in America where everybody's neighbor and everybody's friend and everybody's family and every guy down the street, everybody claims to be Christian. But Christianity has very specific, definable points to it. If it were true that everybody who just said, well, I believe in Jesus, and let me be specific again, the Bible says that the devils and demons in hell believe God. They, they believe he exists. They know it better than you do. And it says they tremble when Jesus found the demoniac at the Gadarenes. They, who were called legion, worshipped him. So the demons know who Christ is. They just don't have faith in him as a savior. He did not die for them, but they believe in him. If belief is simply admitting that he exists as a historical figure, well, that's not true faith. So it is much more than just saying, I believe in Jesus, or I'm going to try to follow some of his teachings because I think he was a good and a wise teacher. If that were true, then the heretics through the history of the church would also have to be called Christians. Whether you're talking about the Gnostics or the Manichaeans or the Arians or the Marcionites or the Docetists or the first century Judaizers, you would have to say they were all technically Bible-believing members of the Christian faith if you don't define what Christianity actually means. And that is why... I try to take a very narrow and very specific and very biblical view of what Christianity actually is because it is necessary to know what Christianity is if you are going to be, in fact, the Christian. The Christian life is lived out by way of specific activity like prayer. We are called to be prayerful people. We're called to study God's word. That is part of definitionally what it is to be a Christian. We are told to have fellowship with like-minded Christian people. The other people who God has chosen, elected, taught, those are the people that we are supposed to fellowship with and congregate with. And it is a service to others that we are to perform in the name of Christ. In other words, so much of what it is to be definitionally Christian has to do with behavior. Christianity is not just doctrinal. Yes, it is absolutely doctrinal. There are certain things that Christians do believe and certain things that Christians can't believe, but... It's not enough to just sit at home by yourself in the corner and say, well, I believe these particular theological ideas about Jesus. You also have to put those ideas into practice. It's a very important reality of Christianity is that it is lived out. It is best expressed in the context of community with other believers. Gather with other believers in order to worship God. That is definitional to what Christianity is. Now, having said that, I know there are places on the planet right now where it's virtually impossible to find other Christians to congregate with. That's why God gave us the Internet, which can be used for glorified purposes. The internet can be used to spread the Christian message around the planet and to give people who are alone on the planet an opportunity to be part of a community of Christians. The internet can also be used for horrible, evil, nefarious purposes. But we, as Christians, necessarily have to express our Christianity in community with other Christians. There are no island Christians. Nobody who figured it out by themselves, who live it out by themselves, who study the Bible by themselves, who worship God by themselves. It is necessary as part of Christianity that you be part of the community, which is why Jesus said, I will build my church, my assembly, my ecclesia, my collection of people 
and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. A moment ago, I said that we were going to have Tom read the first three verses of Ephesians 4 because in these three verses, you're going to hear immediately that Christianity is also about behavior, how you live, how you conduct yourself. And then we're going to spend the balance of the morning talking about what that kind of Christianity looks like. So if you would, Tom. Uh, Ephesians 4, verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Hang on. To do what? To walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now this is the book of Ephesians. Don't sit down. This is the book of Ephesians, which rather providentially, during our scripture and prayer this morning, Leon chose to read. That book starts out with three chapters of astoundingly deep theology and doctrine. And the last three chapters are about how you should behave in reaction to having learned that doctrine. You can't separate the doctrine of Christianity from the behavior of Christianity. The two are intimately connected because once you know the truth, Paul then says, now walk according to the truth you have just learned. Go ahead, read it again. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness and with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Okay, so Paul just defined what basic Christian behavior looks like. And it's real easy to read past each of those phrases. But Paul picked this language on purpose because it is the beginning of defining what it is to live in a Christian way, in a Christian fashion. First, walk in a manner that is worthy of your calling. We love the doctrines of grace. We love the fact that Jesus paid our eternal sin price. We love the notion that we have been elected by God since before the foundation of the world. We love the fact that we have been effectually called by God to eternal life. We love all of that because that's all the stuff that God does for us. But Paul then says we ought to react to it. And because we've been called, we ought to behave ourselves in a manner that is worthy of that calling. Now again, get it right. We are not called because we walked so good. So much of Christianity says you are saved by grace and therefore your actions don't matter. He's going to pay your sin debt so your actions don't matter. He's going to save you anyway. You can't be bad enough that he would ever give up on you so your actions don't matter. That is genuine antinomianism. That is to truncate Christianity and say... Well, it only matters that Jesus saves. It doesn't matter how I react to the fact that he saved me. Except that Paul begins chapter 4, which is the transitional moment in the book of Ephesians. When he's transferring from all of that heavy doctrine stuff that you find in chapters 1 and 2 and all that salvation by grace stuff that we dearly love as he's transitioning into the second half of his letter he starts with, now walk worthy of the calling that called you. So it's much more than just Calvinistic doctrine, which again, we love. We love the Calvinistic doctrine. But if all you're hearing is the doctrine is sufficient for your Christian life, the doctrine is sufficient to save you and therefore you don't have to do anything in reaction to it, then you are hearing a truncated gospel because Paul himself says, now that you know everything that God has done for you, act like it. Walk like it. How often do you hear Jesus himself make a distinction and a difference between those that are his and the world? 
says, don't be like the world. Don't act like the world. Don't talk like the world. Don't behave like the world. Well, then it's clear that Jesus, Paul, all the New Testament writers make a distinction between the saved and the unsaved. And that distinction goes all the way back into the Old Testament. Why did God give Israel the law, the Ten Commandments, 613 rules, and by the way, the vast majority of those 613 rules had to do with behavior. It was all behavioral stuff. And what was the purpose for God saying, behave like this? So that you wouldn't be like the other nations. So that you will be distinct. So that you will be unique. The King James says, so that you will be a peculiar people. I always liked that translation. <laughs> so that you will be distinct from all the other people on the planet. God has not changed in his nature or his characteristics just because Christ came. Now, if you are in Christ and Christ is in you, God still expects you to be different than the unsaved nations. He still expects you to be different than the unsaved world. And he makes a clear distinction when he says things like, you are not of the world because I have chosen you out of the world and therefore the world hates you. That creates two different categories, the world and the Christians, the church. And the world hates the church. Okay, well then, how do you define who the church is? How do you define who the Christians are? From the Bible, there are only three places where the word Christian is actually used. And originally, it was used as an epithet. It was used to make fun of Christian people. Before that, they were referred to as the people of the way. And then they were called little Christ, which is one of the definitions of Christianity. It really means a diminutive Christ. And why were the people being made fun of for being Christ-like? Because their behavior was distinctly different from the world. They were clearly acting like Christ. And so people would make fun of them for acting like Christ the same way people make fun of us today because we try to walk and act the way Christ would have us walk and act. The first place where you see the word Christian is in Acts 11.26. It says, so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people, and the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Why were they referred to as little Christ? Because they were disciples. They were walking like, they were acting like Christ. They were following the discipline of Christ. Acts 26, 28 is the second place where you see it. And this is also apparently a little slap at Paul. Agrippa says to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you could persuade me to be a Christian? And the third place where we see it is in 1 Peter 4, 16. And this is the first place where Peter takes that word that was originally being employed in order to make fun of Christians, he turns it around and makes it a positive and says, however, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. The very fact that people can see it in you, the very fact that people can see that you're different, the fact that people can see that you're not of this world, if they then call you Christian because they're making fun of you, Peter says, don't be ashamed of that. Be happy that God would let you wear that name, that you could walk through your life being clearly and obviously Christian. This is why I use the phrase be the Christian. Okay, so what is the first most definitional characteristic of being a Christian? The first thing that would separate you from the whole rest of the world. Jesus gives us the first directive. How is the world going to know that you don't belong to the world anymore and that you belong to me? In John 13, 35, Jesus gives us the answer. This is his mark of a Christian. This is the first thing you need to know definitionally to be considered a Christian. By this 
all men will know that you are my disciples. What does it mean to be a disciple? It means you're under the discipline, not in a bad way. But if you've learned to play piano, you know, Danielle sits over here and she's a very good piano player. Do you know why she's a good piano player? Because she was under the discipline of learning to play piano. She sat down day after day after day and played scales. She sat down and did the basics. She went through the rudiments until she's now good enough to sit here and play for us. And I'm thankful that she does. But that's because she was under the musical discipline. The reason that George is a lawyer is because he went to school and he read the books and he did all the late hours. He put in all the effort so that he was under the discipline of the law and the legal profession so that now he can hang out a sign and say, lawyer, I'm available. Do you have a sign that says, lawyer, I'm available? Well, yeah, anyway, no, no, okay. <laughs> okay, so that's the positive form of the word Discipline, to be under the discipline. Okay, well then, to be under the discipline of Christ, which, by the way, is behaviorally based in order for people to recognize you as a disciple of Jesus Christ, here is the mark of what it is to be a Christian. By this will all men know. They will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Okay, now the world... The whole world, I don't care what person you're talking to, you can say to them, you can find the worst sinner on the planet. I'm going to pick somebody at random. Let's say you found Hitler and you had a chance to have a little coffee and chat with Hitler. You could ask him, what do you love? And he'll love something. He got married. I love being in a ditch on fire. Uh, Whatever it is he loved... I'm sorry, that was a Hitler thing. (laughs) Erica actually looked at me, not knowing her history, with amazement that I would say such a thing. Everybody loves something. Everybody loves something. And yet Jesus said that your love for one another was definitional to what it was to be a Christian and that all men would know you were his disciple by your love for one another. Well, then he can't be talking about the common everyday kind of love that even Hitler can demonstrate. He has to be talking about a different kind of love. He's talking about agape. He's talking about that kind of love that God alone can demonstrate. He's talking about sacrificial love. He's talking about doing what is best for other people simply because it is what is best for other people. So much common human love is based on what I get out of it. I love you. I really love you. I love you. Now, what are you going to do for me? That's common human love. But sacrificial love, biblical love, Christian love, the kind of love that Jesus talked about is doing what is best for the other person, whether you get anything out of it or not, because you sacrificially love them. Look, Jesus died to pay for the sins of Lee. But he died for you because he knew that was what you really needed and what was best for you. And when he did it for you, you were an enemy of his. You hated him. And nevertheless, he did it for you. Okay, that is what I mean by sacrificial love. And then he says, be like that. Sacrifice for each other. That's how the world is going to know that you're my disciples is the way that you sacrificially look after each other, the way you take care of each other, the way that you love each other. Jesus starts with that as the definition. You'll notice that he did not say, by this will all men know that you are my disciples by your adherence to a fine point of doctrine. He didn't say that. He said, this is the thing, the activity the behavior, the sacrificial love that you have for one another. So, so far we know that a Christian is under the discipline, the learning of Christ. That's why he's referred to as a disciple. He is a learner about the things of Christ, the way of Christ, the law of Christ, the commands of Christ. 
He's under that discipline, and the first rule of that discipline is love. Isn't that interesting? The first rule of the discipline of Jesus is not understanding eternally glorious, complicated, difficult things. He started with, this is the proof positive that will prove to all men that you are my disciples by your love for one another. That's how important Christian sacrificial love is in defining what it is to be a Christian. 1 John 2, verses 4 to 6 say this. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. Hang on, let me make a distinction. Notice the word his That's a really important pronoun right there. Because far too often people see the word commandments and they think, oh, the Ten Commandments. But the Ten Commandments were the formation document referred to as the words of the covenant that were written on the tablets of the covenant that were put in a box called the Ark of the Covenant because God was forming a covenant with Israel. That's the old covenant, that old covenant was broken by Israel, and therefore God has established a new covenant. And under that new covenant, according to Moses, there was going to be a new lawgiver. And then Jesus walked on the planet and started walking around saying things like, you've heard it said, and then he would quote Moses. And then he would say, but I say, and then he would say something oftentimes completely different. Because he was the new lawgiver. He was the new commander. He was God laying out his new commandments for his church that he was in the activity of building. Therefore, if you say you've come to know Christ, but you don't keep his commandments, you see the difference? The commandments of Christ. If you don't follow the commandments of Christ, you're a liar. Now, by the way, is it necessary to point out that's behavior, That's behavior. He has commandments he has given you. And if you say you know him, but you don't follow those commandments, you're a liar. And that's the reason I said earlier that if you're not following the biblical definition of what Christianity is, you're probably not a Christian. The one who says, I have come to know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps Christ's word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. What an interesting phrase. The love of God that sent Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ dies to form his own church and by the Holy Spirit inhabits the people that are part of his ecclesia and then they are told that definitionally the way that they love one another is going to demonstrate that they are the disciples of Christ and then through their love for one another, the love of God working through Christ, through the church and through those peoples is the completion and a perfection of the very love of God. Cool! Here at GCA, we don't yell amen. We say cool for some reason. But Whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. Okay, good, 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 good. This is definitional again. I want Christ in me and I'm in Christ. How do I know? Is there a proof positive? Can I demonstrate that I am in Christ and Christ is in me? Here's what John says. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he stays in him, who abides in him, ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. That's behavior. The one who says, I have Christ in me and doesn't follow his commands, he's a liar. The one who says, I know Christ and Christ is in me, is then going to walk out his life. He's going to have the Christian worldview. He's going to view everything in his life through the lens of the superiority, the lordship, the saviorhood of Christ Jesus. 
Luke 9.23, you all know this phrase, Jesus himself said it. If anyone desires to come after me, if anyone desires to be Christian, to follow after Christ, then let him deny himself. That's the first part. The first part is give up on you. How often have you heard me use that phrase? You got to get over yourself. The most frequently mentioned sin in the Bible is pride, pride ego, arrogance, self-sufficiency. You got to get over yourself. You have to deny yourself because, let me be honest with you, if you know you at all, you lie to you. You are not a good resource for truth, especially if you're listening to you to find the truth. Truth is external to you, and you have to learn the truth from God, by his spirit, through his word. That's the only way you're going to understand the genuine reality of this world and time and eternity. You're never going to understand those things if you spend your whole life gazing at your own belly button. That's not going to get you anywhere. You don't intrinsically, just because you were born, know the truth. And yet the world today... You'll find people riding in the streets and somebody will put a camera on them and ask them why they're doing those things. And at some point, they will make reference to their truth. Well, it's just my truth. I'm just living out my truth. You don't have a truth. What you have is your ego. What you have is your imagination. What you have is your self-taught beliefs. In order for you to know the truth, you have to know God. You have to know Christ. And therefore, you have to give up on you. Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily. Okay, let's talk about cross for a moment. When Jesus referred to the cross, he knew he was headed for the cross. He knew what was going to happen on the cross. Is a cross a summer vacation? No. What happens on a cross? Impaled and left to die. Torture. A cross is a difficult way to go. So here's Jesus saying, it's not going to be easy. The world is not going to like you. And yet you need to give up on you, deny yourself, take up your cross. Notice the word daily. You got to do it every single day. You got to wake up every day and realize that Christ is Lord. You got to wake up every day and remind yourself that Jesus is with you and he's your savior. You got to remember every single day that it is the grace of God that is letting you breathe. It is the grace of God that is giving you any hope and confidence and forward looking. It is only the grace of God that causes you not to fear death. It is the grace of God that gives you hope. And you know what? By tomorrow, you'll forget all that. As I'm saying it, you're all nodding at me. Yeah, that's right. And by tomorrow, you'll forget it. You have to wake up every day and remember it. Every day, give up on yourself. Why do you have to give up on yourself every day? Because tomorrow, it's all about you. You're going to start with you again. You're going to start with your opinion. You're going to start with your fears. Oh, no, what's going to happen today? And yet Jesus has got today. He's got tomorrow. He's got those things covered for you. But as soon as you get full of you, you'll start worrying about you. And what's going to happen to you? Give up on you. And do it every single day because you'll forget. And you'll think, well, I did it yesterday. You got to do it today. Every day you take up your cross and you follow Christ. Am I clear on that point? Yes. Okay. Are there any points so far that anybody's vague on? So let's talk about the difference between your flesh and the Spirit of God. Because there are very distinct differences. And if you know those differences, you can check yourself and see whether you really are a Christian. Galatians 5. Turn there if you would. We'll be there for a little while. Galatians 5, starting at verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are obvious. They are evident. 
These are the deeds of the flesh. Immorality. That, that kind of covers a wide swath. But if you are living in a way that is immoral, one of two things is true. Either you have the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God is convicting you of your immorality, or you don't care, which is proof positive you don't have the Spirit of God. Impurity. God is pure. God is holy and righteous. And you are not. And therefore, if you're living by the flesh, you just cannot be pure. You're living in impurity, immorality, sensuality, which means fleshliness, doing everything you can to satisfy your flesh. Idolatry, chasing after everything else rather than God. Worshiping everything else rather than God. I've used examples before like rock stars and sports stars. and We worship so many things. And they can become idols very, very easily. Sorcery, which the root word, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, Steve, because I'm working off memory at this moment. But the root word there is a pharmakeia. Pharmakeia. I got it right. Okay, where have you ever heard the word pharmakeia? Pharmacy. We still use that word. Pharmaceuticals. Why then is it translated sorcery here? Because drugs put you in an altered state of mind. Now let me be clear. Paul said to Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach's sake and you're off in infirmities. He was prescribing wine medicinally because Timothy was sick. So there's a difference between medicine and just doing drugs, and our society is absolutely riddled with drug doing. There are plenty of people who spend all their lives out of their minds in altered states of existence. That is what that word here, translated sorcery, means, to be out of your mind with drugs. Enmities, that means to be angry at people, to hate other people. And that, of course, causes strife to be arguing with people, fighting with people, jealousy, never content with what you have because other people have something more than you have or something that you desire, so you're never content with what God has decided to have for you. Outbursts of anger. Boy, I can read that one and put my hand way up in the air and say, boy, that, that was me. When I was a young man, I had a temper. Thank God. He drove that one out of me. Outbursts of anger, disputes, that means arguing with people. Notice the many things here in a row that have to do with disagreeing with people and arguing with people, enmities and strife and jealousy and outbursts of anger and disputes and dissensions and factions, breaking into groups so that you can argue with each other. It's a very big thing in Paul's mind. And then envying, which goes with jealousy. Envying other people for what they have. Drunkenness, do I have to explain that? And like I said a moment ago, Paul said, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. There's nothing wrong with having some wine. There's nothing wrong with having something to drink. We just read last week as we were talking about the tithes that while we were saying, eat your tithes, which, by the way, I have to mention, I got a text from Micah this week saying how much he enjoyed that message, hashtag, eat your tithes. <laughs> but if the route to Jerusalem was too distant, we were told you could sell it, take the money in your hand, go to Jerusalem, buy whatever your heart desires, wine and strong drink. So strong drink wine in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's when it owns you, when it takes over, when it alters your state of mind, and then you're drunk. That's very much like the sorcery idea. Any kind of chemical compounds that you are taking that is altering your state of mind so that you can't concentrate on the things of God, those things are forbidden. Those things are fleshly. 
carousing. We've got a lot of carousing going on right now. All it means is you're out in the streets. You're just up to no good. And then after that list, which you would think was a fairly comprehensive list, Paul says, and things like that. In other words, it's obvious. You know, when you see the activity of the flesh, when you're engaged in the activity of the flesh, you know. You turn on the news. You see things. You think, that, that's not right. That's just fleshly people doing fleshly things. And so he would say the deeds of the flesh are evident of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice activity, practice, the people who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Is that clear enough? That kind of fleshly behavior will not get you the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit first word is love same place Jesus started by this will all men know that you are my disciples by your love one for the other Paul when contrasting the spirit and the flesh starts with the fruit of the spirit is love the fruit of the spirit is joy that doesn't mean happiness by the way the word happiness came to us from the same root as words like happening happenstance your happiness is based on what's going on. Something might happen that makes you happy. Something might happen that makes you unhappy. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the joy of the Lord, the kind of joy that the world just simply cannot understand, the kind of joy in knowing who you are and where you're going and where you're going to end up, the kind of joy that makes you recognize that as crazy as the world is right now, it is under the hand of a sovereign God and he is doing whatever he is pleased to do and then you are also pleased in what he has chosen to do. You have the joy of the Lord. And peace, Paul refers to the kind of peace that passes understanding who is it that doesn't understand it everybody else the whole world can't figure out how it is that you can have peace in the midst of the terrible things that happen in this world has anybody here ever gone through something that you thought was going to kill you and yet the more you concentrated on God the more you worshiped God the more you prayed to God the more you thought about God the more your heart was calmed the more your spirit was calmed and you reached the point of having peace, the peace that the world just can't understand. That's the fruit of the spirit. Patience, long-suffering, enduring, putting up with each other. That's part of what it is to sacrificially love each other. Look, within the assembly of the church, we're really fortunate right now at GCA because pretty much everybody here likes everybody else. We all like each other. We all get along fine. But in my experience in the church and here at GCA, we have certainly had people come through the door who were just difficult people. Just difficult to be patient with. And yet the fruit of the Spirit is to sacrificially love those people anyway and to endure patiently with those people. The fruit of the Spirit is kindness. Our English word kind, by the way, is a contraction of the word kind. And what is it to have kin? That's actually an old English word. You find that word in the King James 1611 version. To be kin is to be family, to be related to each other. That has just been contracted to the word kind, so that helps you to define how it is to be kind to one another. It means to treat them the way you would treat somebody who's family, somebody that you really care about. Goodness. Goodness as a behavior. Goodness, just doing good things, just doing what is the proper thing, doing what is the right thing, and doing it for no other reason than because, well, that's what's good. That's the good thing to do. That's the fruit of the Spirit, along with faithfulness. I don't think at this moment Paul, because of where he placed that, is necessarily referring to faith in Christ. He's saying, you're good for your word. 
if you make a promise you're going to be there you be there if you tell somebody you can count on me they can count on you if you tell somebody that you're their friend you're going to be their friend you are faithful to your word gentleness oh man isn't that one we all need gentleness because our tendency especially online you get behind the keyboard and suddenly everybody else is an idiot it's the same deal as when you're driving you all know that when you're driving you're the only good driver on the on the road anyway it's the same thing when you get behind the keyboard just everybody else deserves to know what you think of them and you just got to pour it out on them and yet you're told to be gentle and have self-control don't fly off and don't say stupid things and don't be harsh with people be gentle be patient have self-control against such things there is no restriction no law there is nowhere anywhere that says don't be like this in other words the law does say if you're into immorality or impurity or sensuality idolatry sorcery enmity strife jealousy outbursts of anger disputes dissensions factions envying drunkenness carousing and things like that the law does say don't be like that don't do that but then the fruit of the spirit which is joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness self-control against these there's no restriction there is no law that says don't be like that in other words Paul is saying that's exactly how you should be if you have the spirit of God inside you and there is absolutely nothing that would prohibit you from being like that that is what it is to be the Christian now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh Jesus said take up your cross daily I asked you what happens on a cross on a cross people get crucified Paul picks up that language and says those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified killed done away with their flesh with its passions and its desires okay that is also definitional then to what it is to be a Christian that you give up on you you get over you you deny yourself and in everything you do everything you see everything you think every decision you make every job you do everything your hand finds to do you do it all as unto the Lord every single day you recognize that he is your savior he is your Lord he is your master he is your captain he is your chief he is the one who is steering and you recognize that day today today and the reason that you exercise the gift of the spirit the reason that you are full of love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness self-control is because you don't belong to you you belong to Jesus Christ who expects you to be the Christian now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires if we live by the Spirit we love to say I am saved eternally and the reason I know that is because I have the Spirit of God inside me therefore I am going to live eternally by the Spirit okay that's all true but it's not the whole story the rest of it is if we live by the Spirit let us also walk by the Spirit and he has just defined what that looks like it is walking in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness gentleness self-control that's how you're supposed to walk if in fact you live by the Spirit because that's what the Spirit would exude through you if we live by the Spirit we should also walk by the Spirit let us not become boastful arrogant 
proud, challenging one another and envying one another. So Paul has laid out, this is what the flesh looks like. This is what the spirit looks like. If you say you're a Christian, then you have the Holy Spirit in you. And if you walk by the spirit, this is what it would look like. And if you're still looking like this, if you're still looking like the flesh, the world can't tell the difference between you and the world. If you're still walking like the world and acting like the world and thinking like the world and behaving like the world, then the world loves its own. But if you belong to Christ and you have the Spirit of God in you, then you are going to walk by the Spirit. You are going to walk according to the things of Christ. Is that obvious enough? How many times now, Tom, have we seen walk like it, behave like it? This is thematic in the Bible. It just keeps coming up. And I think sometimes we read it and go, yeah, okay. (coughs) Except that it is definitional to what Christianity is. Titus 2. Titus 2, I'm going to read verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared. Aren't you thankful for that? Up until Christ came, it was all law, law, law. You're not good enough. You're going to be condemned. You're under sin. You're under judgment. Law, law, law. Christ appears. The new covenant comes into fruition. And grace appears. Oh, that's good news. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all kinds of people. Training us. Oh. Oh, wait, I thought it was just a doctrinal thing. I thought I just had to believe certain things. If I just accepted those things, I thought that was enough to prove that I was saved. Except that Paul, when writing to Titus, says that we are being trained to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That's what the discipline is. That's what the disciple thing is. We're being trained by Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God to not only deny ourselves, but to deny ungodliness and worldly passions. And we're being taught that. We're being trained by the Word of God and by the Spirit of God. We're being disciplined to know how to do that and to live self-controlled, By the way, as often as the Bible brings up the self-control thing, what does that tell you about you by nature? It means you're a wild man by nature. You're crazy upstairs by nature. You want to do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it, and you want to heap as much pleasure and goodness to you as you possibly can, and forget everybody else. It doesn't matter what they get. They go get their own. As long as I get what I came here for, I am completely running over people, hurting people, denouncing people, doing damage everywhere. That's your natural state. And so the Bible says over and over, you need self-control which you cannot have naturally. You have to have it by the Spirit of God. You're taught it in the Bible. You're trained by the Spirit how to control your vessel, how to control your flesh, and to deny and renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright. What does that mean? You all know what it means. The Bible says, walk out your life upright. He doesn't just mean stand up, don't lay down the whole time. It means in an upright fashion. You know what it means. It means to do things that are right, that are correct. Things that are beneficial to other people. Things that are trustworthy. Things that are faithful. To walk out your life with a good reputation so that other people know that they can trust you. Be upright. Be honest. Don't trick people. Don't rob people. Self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. So the Spirit of God, the grace of God, has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, and 
Previously, I read that all kinds because that's what the word pas there means. Training us, teaching us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live, to walk, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That's behavior. I can't avoid it. And then here's your motivation for why. You might say, okay, okay, well, good. I see that the Bible says that, but it's hard. It's hard, Jim. I don't want to crucify my flesh every single day. I don't want to get up every day and recognize my Lord and Master and Captain. Some days it should just be about me. Here's your motivation for why you should be like that. Waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's why you walk that way. Because every single day of your life, as part of what it is to be a Christian, you should be anticipating the return of Christ. And because you know he's going to come, and because you know he is the great God and Savior, for those reasons, you want to be found walking in a way that is appropriate for your profession of faith in him. If Jesus appeared, moon and stars and sky goes dark, the sign of the Son of Man, that's how he's coming back for the world. The world's going to freak out and run to the rocks and the caves and the dens of the earth and say, fall on us. The coming of Christ is going to be a terrifying thing for the rest of the world. And yet for us, it's our blessed hope. It's what we're anticipating, what we're looking forward to. And wouldn't it be great if Jesus appears and says, come up hither. And wouldn't it be great to be able to say to him, I was just thinking about you. I was just reading your word, thinking about, I was singing a song to you. I would just, wouldn't that be great? We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You can't get away from it. It's always there. Notice the doctrinal end of it. The doctrinal side of what Paul just wrote here is, is wonderful and brilliant. Christ gave himself, sacrificed himself to redeem us from all our lawlessness. We have broken the law of God repeatedly over and over. None of us is good enough to stand before a righteous and a holy God. So Christ himself gave himself to buy us off the slave market of sin and to pay for our sin debt and redeem us from all our lawlessness and to purify for himself. We're not doing it. We're not purifying ourselves. And then Jesus is going to come get us and go, okay, good, you're pure now. He is purifying for himself by paying that sin debt, by paying for our lawlessness. He is purifying for himself a people for his own possession. Man, that is some deep theology and doctrine. And I just absolutely love it. And right in the midst of all that, Paul says, and because that's you, if that's you, if you are in Christ and he is in you and you are looking forward to the blessed hope and the return of our Savior who has done all that for us, then you are people who are zealous, not casual. You are zealous for good works. Your behavior matters. Now, I have to say it again so that people understand what I am saying and what I am not saying. You're not saved because of your good works. If you are saved, you are zealous for good works. You got it? That's all what it is to be a Christian. And I haven't even begun. So next week, we will continue not only in defining what it is to be a Christian, but then we will talk about the very real, very genuine benefits of Christianity. And why, as difficult as it is, that it's completely worth it. All right? Grab a hymnal.
we are going to sing, Have Your Own Way, Lord, because that is exactly what we want. Have Thine Own Way. for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His Sovereign Grace.